I'm in a study in Philippians. If we go Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing this church he loves, and he's going to give them, he, he has a little bit of a concern for them, not because they're making mistakes, just because he's seen it. He's been around. He's been around the block a little bit, and Paul knows, we talked about last week, how quickly disunity can come into a church, and it starts with little seeds of bitterness. We said last week that unity is something that grows on the inside with thoughts and seeds of bitterness. Unity or disunity always comes. It starts here in the heart. And so he gave us a, a, a little, um, I guess a challenge or his recipe for unity in the church last week. And it was very simply, count others as more significant than yourselves. In writing to this church, his secret to, okay, I've seen all these churches be torn apart by disunity, by, by factions, all these groups rising up. Here's the reality. You want to avoid disunity? Treat others as more significant as yourself. That was his secret. Now, when I was a kid in, in middle school in the 90s, Garth Brooks was the man. He still is, as a matter of fact. But if you were a, if you were a young, young man or even young lady, and that, like everyone listened to Garth Brooks. Just, he, he, he came on country music and just took it over. And Garth Brooks was the man. And so I remember I was uh, junior high, and Garth Brooks came to uh, Hammond Student Center. I waited in line. My mom took me. She still reminds me of this um, to this day. This was old, like you didn't get on Ticketmaster back then. They didn't have it. So I waited in line for 16 hours to get a ticket and did not get a ticket. I was, cr yes, I, yeah, you know, you have no idea. I was crushed. I was crushed. Uh, waited, did not get a ticket. I mean, Garth Brooks was my hero, right? And so he, you know, he does this thing, and then he, he retires to, to raise his daughters. And I'm just crushed because I never get to see Garth Brooks. Well, Emily and I went to Nashville a few years ago for our 10-year anniversary, and we went to go see another concert at the Ryman Auditorium. And so we, we go to the Ryman, and, and we walk out of the Ryman after our show. It's like, you know, 9, 30, 10 o'clock, and there are people everywhere. Everywhere, and so right down the road is there. There's the big arena there in Nashville, like a big stadium. I don't remember which stadium it is. There's people everywhere, so I was like, Emily, let's let's check this out. So we walk down there, and and there's there's people waiting to get into there for a show. And I was like, man, it's a late late night, late time, late time for a show. And so I go up to the person, and I say, so hey, who's playing in there? And he's like, Garth Brooks. Like his stomach drops. He's like, yeah, he's doing two shows. He just got this one done. You remember when he would do those little like charity type events? It was for the flood that was happening in Nashville. So he does a series of shows. So Emily and I find a scalper on the, on the street and we buy tickets to Garth Brooks. Now they're in the very top. And all of a sudden, like I'm like back to 12 years old and I'm just giddy. You know, so we go to the very top of the, of the auditorium. One of the most interesting experiences I've ever been, Garth Brooks is the best worship leader in our country. And here's why I say that. And the idea of counting more people is more significant than yourselves. Anyone ever been to a Garth Brooks show? Show of hands. Wow, we need to be better at this, Hill City. <laughs> here's the thing about him. He has this gift, this knack, that if you're at his show, you feel like you are the biggest person in the room. It's amazing. Like his whole philosophy, because I've watched some interviews of his, his whole philosophy of, of why he tours and how he tours is this. I want to make them, the people, 
the most important thing. I've watched an interview once, and he says every single venue he goes to, he sits at the very top, kind of where we were sitting, and he looks down over the whole auditorium, and, he, and he's sitting in his seat at the very top of the room, and he says to himself, how tonight, how can I make this person feel like they're the most important person in the room? And it's amazing during a show because he constantly will acknowledge the audience. And if he sees someone, he'll point to him. If he hears the crowd singing, he'll get this really crazy Garth Brooks smile on his face. At one time, he pointed to me. <laughs> like, at the very top, he saw, like, I, I could tell it was just to me. Emily thought it was her, but no, it was me. He has this knack of making you feel like you are the biggest person in the room. Here's his whole goal of his show. Count others is more significant than myself. There were times, and he would encourage like the audience to sing, which is much, I mean, I'm in Tennessee, so you know those rednecks can sing there. Uh, there were times, Emily at the top of the auditorium, we could not hear the band or him because the singing was so loud. And he loved it. And so this idea of counting others more significant than yourself, Paul's going to say the secret to unity and the secret to you even being loved by people and, and kind of living a life that's ambitious and all that, the secret to that is to not elevate yourself, but to elevate others. And in, and in giving this analogy of unity and what it looks like to, to put, up, put others as more important than yourselves, Paul is going to give us a model today. It's going to be a perfect example of what this looks like, and I guess it's a little more perfect than Garth Brooks. And that is the humility of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today. This is, a, this is an awesome text we're going to be in. Um, most people think that this, this part in Philippians 2 is some sort of old hymn or creed that, that was used in the early church. But Paul's going to point us to this su supreme example of humil humility or this supreme example of what does it look like? Like, let's put tangible here. What does it look like to put others ahead of yourselves? So let's go to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to actually start reading some of what I taught last week, and we'll get into verse 5 and 6 in a second. So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, there's going to be some great theological points in this text we're going to read. We're going to learn a lot about who Jesus is. But I don't want us to get caught up in the clouds of all these deep theological points and miss the whole point of what Paul is talking about. Paul is not interested in our knowledge right now. Paul is interested in our be obedience. So he's going to say to us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he's going to get us ready to point us to Jesus with some deep thinking, some deep theological points. But his goal is that you and I would have this mind and it would lead to life change. If our kids are in the room, I tried to make a point today that you guys could understand. I think it's on your sheet. 
that he's going to call us to treasure and follow. To treasure Christ and to follow Christ. The goal is not knowledge. The goal is obedience. There's a big difference between getting knowledge and then being a learner. Someone with the knowledge just has knowledge and they know a bunch of stuff. A learner is someone that takes that knowledge and actually puts it into practice. Our goal for us this morning is that we would treasure Christ and follow Christ. We'd be learners that result in us doing and taking action. So Paul's goal is that we would treasure and follow Christ. And here's what he's going to say is have this mind among yourselves because what I'm going to talk about today is not natural. It is not natural for me. It's not natural for you. The natural thing for me is me first. That's easy. Like that is what comes natural to me. My interest first. And what we're going to talk about today is a complete opposite of that. And that is others first. So unity isn't a result of a sermon. It's a result of treasuring Christ and following Christ. And Paul is going to point us to Jesus this morning. The more we individually treasure Christ and follow Christ, the more we corporately will be unified together. That's it. That's why every single week we sing the gospel. Every single week I preach the gospel. It's the same message. Some of you are like, when are we going to move on to something new? We're not. Every week, we're going to take Jesus and his death on the cross as the central theme of our message. And we're going to lift that up and we're going to say, let's, let's point each other to that. Because as we are pointed to Jesus, unity and right living and obedience and all these things follow. Some of you have seen this like when you did marriage counseling or something. Call it the, I call it the Jesus triangle. I don't, I don't know what it's called. The idea is if you have two people that are far apart, as we are pointed to Jesus, as we start to go towards Jesus, then those people come together. It happens in marriages, it happens in friendships, it happens in, it happens in churches. Paul's goal this morning is to show us a better example of who Jesus is or a better idea of who Jesus is and point us to it and say, treasure Christ and follow. And in doing so, unity will happen. Let's keep going. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Paul says, have this mind among yourselves which is right thinking. Remember, we've talked about in Philippians, the two major themes are joy in all circumstances and right thinking. The reason he says have this mind among yourselves is because what he's going to tell us is not our natural state. We have to have a mind of it or it will not happen. It is a right thinking issue. I'm going to talk about at the end some practices that you can do to encourage your thinking, but this will not happen naturally. It is a right thinking issue. I told you about a month ago that Emily and I were trying to eat clean, more clean. Here's what I've found as I've tried to really like tighten up what I eat is eating good stuff does not always come natural to me. Like the natural thing, we had donuts back there this morning, 
And I had a cheat day yesterday, so I got after it yesterday. I got fried chicken and cheesecake last night. It was glorious. You know, one cheat day a week, but the rest of the week we're, we're pretty tight. There's donuts back there this morning uh, in our meeting, and like, I walked back there, and just without even thinking about it, I started to reach for a donut, because my natural thing says, oh, donuts, I'm in. Like, that's me, naturally. My, my natural thinking is donut. And just without thinking, I started to reach, and honey, I didn't get one. Don't get, I'm not in trouble. <laughs> I started to reach, and I was like, oh, no, I can't. So Paul's going to say, have this mind because what we're going to talk about does not come. Like you're not going to stumble into what we're going to talk about this morning. Have this mind, and then look what he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's a key phrase. Because there's a mystery to Christianity that's not just some philosophy that we follow. There's actually a person that we follow. And the Bible says as we follow that person and confess that person, Jesus, that another part of that person, the Holy Spirit, comes and lives with inside us and actually empowers us. So he says, have this mind which is yours. Like this mind is ours because this mind is Christ's mind who's now been put inside of us and is leading us. So Paul's not saying like you need to white knuckle this unity thing. And white knuckle, he's like, no, you have this power. Now that you're a believer, you have this mind, but you have to think about it and submit your natural self to this mind. Have this mind which is already yours in Christ Jesus. And here's what he says. Who, Jesus, was, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is a very confusing text. Because here's one of the things we teach uh, in Christianity that we believe that Jesus is God. We have tons of verses to support that. And so here's what he says. Though he was in the form of God. The form of God means he was God. And the mystery of Christianity is that there's this triune God, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus is that God. Here's what John chapter 1 says. In the beginning was the Word. That Word is Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything that was made. In Genesis, if you look at the creation of Genesis, God doesn't say, I say, let there be light. I say this. He said, let us create. Let us us create man in our image. So Jesus is God. He's not the first created person. He's not the Son of God in the sense that he was born after God existed. No, here's what the Bible teaches about God. Jesus has always existed from the very beginning. So Paul's going to say that he is the form of God. Like he is a perfect representation of who God is. But here's what's, so this form, this perfect representation of God, is going to take a different form. So here's, here's what John 1 says a little bit later it says and this word this word that was from the beginning this word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth so paul says though he was in the form of god jesus was god he did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped so jesus was god but yet he's going to take another form 
and come to earth as a human. We call it the incarnation. The Word, God, became flesh. God took on flesh. And this idea that God would take on flesh and come to us is the thing that separates Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion says you do things, certain religious activities, and you get yourself to God. I was in India one time at a temple. And in this temple, there's all these different shrines to all these different gods. And I would watch people go to each shrine and they would either give money or they would do something. And they would go to this one. And every single one, the idea was, I must do something to appease this God if I'm going to get to him. The mystery of Christianity is that God came to us because he knew he could never get to him. Now, many of us, many of you here, are still living in a religious mindset that says, I must get myself to God. Some of you are here today because you think God will be proud of you that you came to church. And even the act of coming to church is your attempt to get yourself to God. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is we are broken people that can never get ourselves to God. The standard is too high because the standard's perfection. And that's why God said, okay, I will go to them. Jesus said, though I am God, though I'm the form of God, I will empty myself and I'm going to go to them. I'm going to take on flesh. We'll talk about that in a minute. And I'm going to go to them because there is no way that they are going to get to us. So what we teach about Jesus is that Jesus is fully God. He's the form of God. And he's fully man. He took on flesh. Jesus, fully God and fully man. Here's what one theologian said in my research. He says, remaining all that he was, God, he became what he was not, man. Remaining all that he was, God, he became what he was not, a man or human. So Jesus does not surrender his deity to come to earth, he adds humanity. Though he was in the form of God, he's still God. He doesn't surrender that. Because here's the problem. If he surrenders that, if he just becomes a man that's not God, he has no power to rise from the dead. A man does not rise. A dead man does not rise from the grave. It just doesn't happen. So Jesus is fully God. He remained who he was, but then he took on another form, a human form. A couple of years ago, I was doing CrossFit, and uh, I was uh, out on the main floor, and we had uh, our two girls in the babysitting area, and there's these glass windows, and I worked out at Springfield CrossFit. And so one day, I'm, doing, I'm sitting there doing my exercise. I probably had like 250 pounds over my head, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, I look over, and uh, one of the owners of the gym is, is Grant Wistrom, right? How many of you guys know who Grant Wistrom is? Yeah, played, uh, played football at a, at a dumb university in Nebraska, um, All-American, and then played several years for the St. Louis Rams, uh, won, a couple, won a Super Bowl ring, played for the Seattle Seahawks, I believe, after that. So he's one of the owners of the gym. This All-American, uh, the guy's made more money on his signing bonus than I'll make in my whole life, has a, couple, has a Super Bowl ring, has this great status, everyone knows who he is. I look over, I'm doing my thing one day, and I look over in the, in the child area, and Ellie, my little dot, was about this big, 
And Grant Ristam's holding Ellie as she's crying, trying to like shush her. And so now I'm doing cross I'm about to die right now. So through my breasts, I go up to Emily and I was like, hey, honey, uh, NFL, uh, NFL players babysitting our kid right now. We're pretty cool. He didn't need to do that. He could have said, hey, pick up that kid. Here, here's what Grant Wistrom did. He surrendered his all-American status, his Super Bowl status, his NFL career. He surrendered all that, and he bent down, and he humbled himself. Now, his accolades didn't go away. He just took on a different form, a form of a humble servant who would pick up a crying baby that's not his and shush it. And that's the idea of Jesus. He was fully God. He didn't surrender his deity, but he added something to it. He took on the form of man. Verse 6, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. So he says, though he is God, He's going to take on a different form, and in taking on this form, he's going to have to empty part of himself. And this is a mystery, and I've been trying to wrap my head around this all week, and it is hard for me to understand. He remains God, full of his God privileges, but yet he takes on this human form that requires an emptying of him. In order for Jesus to come and take on flesh and dwell among us, he has to leave his place at the right hand of the Father, who's being constantly worshipped by angels. This glory of the sun that radiates in heaven. Jesus has to leave that and he goes and he takes on flesh and he, and he dwells among people. So he says he doesn't quit, consider this, this God thing a thing to be grasped or to held on to. So here's the idea that Jesus, in order to come down, is going to say, I'm going to have to let go of some of my God status. I'm going to have to... I'm not going to grasp it. It says, I didn't, I didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he's going to let go of it. He's going to lay down some rights and privileges of being God. He's not going to clutch on to them. So Jesus lets go of some God status, but he's still God. And he's going to take on or grab a hold of human form. So Jesus gave up his glory, and he took on humanity. And not only did he just take on humanity, because here's the reality. He could have said, okay, I'm coming to earth, but I'm coming with a crown. I'm coming with a castle. I'm coming with servants. No, here's what. He's going to take on human form, but not just any human form. The form that he chooses to take on is the form of a servant. So Jesus, fully God, in heaven, Angels worship him all the time. He's going to say, you know what? I'm going to let go of this. I will not grasp this. I will let go, and I'm going to take on a different form, man. And not just man, but a weak servant. That's the form I'm going to take on. So it says, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he let go of it. And he's going to take the form of a servant. He's going to humble himself and lower himself down, not just to people, but to lowly people. 
Jesus didn't hang out with the elite. He hung out with the lowly people. He's going to take on the form of a servant. It's a great picture in the, in the Obama presidency in the White House. One of my favorite pictures of his presidency um, this story, so here's the story, is this, this little boy is a chief, of, is a son of one of the people that work in the White House, and this little boy got the chance to meet the president. So this little, little four-year-old boy comes in, and Mr. President Obama's watching, this boy's just looking at his head, like his hair. And, uh, and so he, the story goes that Mr. Obama says to this boy, you know, do you have any questions for me? And it says the boy in like this really meek, quiet voice says, is your hair the same as mine? And the president, the leader of the free world, most powerful man in the world, says, well, why don't you find out? And he leans down like this in the picture and humbles himself. And the story goes, the boy was too scared. I mean, this is the president. The president's dealing before him, and, and President Obama looks up, and he's like, come on, dude, it's okay. And, this, and the, the story goes, the boy touches it, and his face just lights up of like, oh, it's like my hair. President of the free world, lowering himself so a boy can feel his hair. Jesus, though he was the form of God, did not surrender that, but surrendered his glory to come and to dwell among people. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus deprived himself of his rights. So Jesus comes, and he comes as a servant. And as Jesus is on the earth, he deprives himself of things that you and I have. Um, while, the, while the disciples were jockeying for position and trying to figure out who's the greatest, Jesus kneels down and he washes their feet. Jesus comes as a servant. He doesn't have a home. Everything that Jesus had, he borrowed. He borrowed a home. He would borrow a boat to go out and teach or to cross a river. He didn't know anything. He borrows a donkey to come into Jerusalem before his execution. The God who made all things has no things. He humbles himself as a servant. And it says in the end of verse 7, he's born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Now we have to wrap our heads around this. I wish, I wish that we could like take this little, this little pill or just drink this little potion and we could put ourselves in the mind of what this is like. The God that created everything, that spoke everything, created this whole world, takes on flesh and doesn't just come down to earth, but he comes down as a baby. He comes in human form. Like this God needs his diaper changed. This God comes down in human form and he got sick. Teenagers, this God got pimples. This God had body odor. He is fully human. He surrenders everything he has and says, if, I'm gonna, if we're going to fix this thing, if we're going to fix this mess called creation, there's only one way to do that. I'm going to go to them, but I'm not going to go as a king. I'm going to go as a humble servant. And he goes and serves people. He never demands people worship him. He doesn't follow around with a team of servants that are taking care of his every need. He comes as a servant. He doesn't wear a crown. He doesn't have a castle. 
He doesn't fire back and defend himself when people attack. He comes as a servant. So much as a servant that here's what people would say about him. What kind of man is this? They were astonished by him. Like he seems to have all this power. And he seems to be someone that's going to lead some revolution. And he has some people that are ready to like die for him. But yet he's hanging out with lepers. And he's hanging out with prostitutes. And he's hanging out with sinners. And they were, they were baffled by what? What kind of God is this? Who? Because he comes as a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so what this, what this text does, it, it, it kind of starts with Jesus. He, he's God. And then it lowers another level, but he didn't consider that to be grass, so he emptied himself. And then it's going to drop down another level. He becomes human, takes on human form. It's going to drop down another level. He becomes a servant. And then here's the very bottom level of Christ's humility, is he dies on a cross. This phrase serves as the rock bottom of Christ's humility. This God humbles himself. It keeps walking down. And then the very bottom is, he humbles himself and he becomes obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, death on a cross. We have no equivalent of death on a cross today in our society, none. It was the most shameful thing that you could do. It was so shameful, Roman citizens could not be executed on a cross. It was against the law. The Jews believed from the Old Testament that anyone that was crucified, that was, that was hung on a tree, was cursed. It was the most disgraceful thing you could ever imagine happen to you, and that is the way Jesus died. This powerful God becomes weak, even death on a cross. Kids, how many of you have watched the Chronicles of Narnia? Raise your hand. So you remember that really, that, that Aslan, you remember Aslan, the big powerful lion, he has this beautiful mane, and he's really strong. You can't really see that. Sorry, it's a dark picture, but the, kind of the pinnacle of that story is when Aslan comes and he sacrifices himself for the boy. And it's, sorry, it's hard to see there, but there's this picture that he has his, his mouth is like taped shut. There's a, there's a shackle over his mouth and he's completely humbled himself and laid down where they can crucify him. That's God. And though the cross was like violent and gruesome and bloody, for Jesus, I think it had nothing to do with the pain. It had to do with an innocent man who was God dying the most shameful death. He humbled himself. Here's what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53. For looking forward to what would happen. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like the root out of dry ground. This is talking about Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Like he wasn't this great. Like all the movies want to show Jesus this like European guy with long flowy hair. Here's what we know about Jesus. He wasn't like he was nothing special. 
He had no form of majesty that we should look at in him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He wasn't honored by men. He was rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is God. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. Being crucified on a cross was so shameful, like many people just, they couldn't even look at it. That's how shameful that was. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, cast away. We didn't even see him like God's rejected him. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, this God, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This God who had everything does not consider that a thing to be held on to, but he lets go of that. He's going to grab onto something else, this human form. He's going to take on the form of a man with all of its limitations and all of its, the, the grossness of humanity. He's going to take on, and he's going to humble himself, not just to a man, but to a servant. And he's going to keep going down. He's going to humble himself, even to the point of death, and the worst death possible, death on a cross. He was beaten because he humbled himself. He was mocked because he humbled himself. He was crowned with thorns because he humbled himself. He was spit on because he humbled himself. He was nailed because he humbled himself. And listen, at any second, he could have destroyed his enemies. Think about that. Think about that. Like you have the power to, dest- to destroy your enemies, the people that are mocking you, that are doing all these, I mean, the worst things imaginable to you. You hold the power to just like um, be gone and crush them. But he refrains. At some point, if it's me, at some point I'm going to look at the people and I'm going to say, you know what? This ain't worth it. At some point, they're not worth it. You know what? I'm going to, if, it's, if it's me, I'm going to look in the future and I'm going to see Daniel Hood in 2017 and I'm going to say, he ain't worth it. Because, yeah, he tries to get up here and preach, and he, and he says he's committed to you, and then he keeps on doing these stupid things. Like, he ain't worth that. Jesus could have done. The guy humbles himself, even to the point of death, and at any second could have said, okay, we're done with this. But he humbles himself all the way to death, even death on the cross. That is the love of God for sinners. It's scandalous. And some of you here, oh, you're just trying to make me feel guilty. Like you're telling me how bad the cross is, so I'll feel guilty and I'll try to act. No, I'm not. Here's my goal and here's Paul's goal, that we would see Christ and we would see his humility and we would say, man, I worship you. That we would treasure that type of humility and then our treasuring that we would follow 
in that example. The goal is not religious guilt. Guilt will not change things. But seeing Christ for who he really is, that will change your life. And then as we see this picture of who Jesus is, the goal of Paul is that we, in turn, would follow in humility after him. And it's not going to come natural. So the most degrading death ever, an innocent man who was God being killed in the worst form possible, the greatest death ever is our greatest hope. Because in that death, Jesus takes your place on the cross. Like, here's the reality, folks. It should have been us there. Every single one of us, the Bible says, has gone astray. Every single one of us has sinned. We deserve to pay that punishment of death for our sin. Jesus pushes out of the way and says, no, I'm going to take this. And he takes your sin and my sin upon himself. And it's in that we find our greatest hope. So this humility of Christ, Paul started with he's God and he's walked us all the way down to the very bottom that he humbled himself even to death on a cross. And some of us are thinking, oh man, humility, like that sounds weak. Like if Jesus had all this power, like it's pretty weak that he didn't do anything. Well, actually what you're going to find is humility is actually greatness. Here's what Jesus will say, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And we see that with Christ. Let's keep going. Verse 9. Therefore, because of Christ's humility, now God has highly exalted him. That word highly exalted means hyper-exalted, meaning it's the top. You can't get any higher. He's highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, every single name. It's above. That name is Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of Jesus' humility, because he laid down everything, now he is glorified to the highest level. He is above every name. And here's what the Bible teaches, that every single knee, every single knee will bow down and confess that he's Lord. Everyone. Now the question for us is, do I do that now? In joy and worship, or do I do that later in sorrow and anguish? Every knee will bow and confess Jesus is Lord. So every time we gather at Hill City Church, every time we worship and we do this, every time our goal is point each other to Jesus. That we would treasure Christ, that we would see the sacrifice that he made, and that would cause us to bow our knee and say, Christ is Lord. He's above. He's above me. He's above my desires. He's above what I want to do, how much money I want to make. He is above everything. Christ is Lord. That's our goal. And then in doing so, that we would then follow and say, okay, now I will live like that. I'm not going to do it perfect. I'm going to have to repent all the time because I totally, I'm going to mess it up all the time. But I'm going to make the, the goal of my life to live with Jesus as my priority, following after him. And what you're going to find in doing so, you're going to have more joy, more influence, because we are drawn to humility. 
So Paul walks us through Jesus. He starts at the top, walks all the way down, and then he's going to go back up and talk about how Jesus is the name above every name. But let's keep the context of this this little hymn or this creed that Paul brings us to in Ephesians, or Philippians 2. The goal is not that we would just learn knowledge about Jesus. The goal is that we would see Jesus, and this is in the context of unity. And counting others as more significant than ourselves. The goal is that we would see Jesus and what he did. And we would say, okay, I'm going to live that way. His goal is that you and I, just like Jesus, let go. Like didn't grasp onto his rights. The goal for Paul is that you and I would let go of our right for justice when someone does us wrong. Like, are you like me? Like, sometimes I just want some justice. You said this about me. You treated me wrong. I come to see you get yours. Jesus died so that I would let go of that. Because actually the person that is in chains is me when I hold that. Jesus laid down his rights so that I would let go of anger. Jesus let go of his rights so I would let go of needing to be the main thing. Man, at your work, do you need to be the main thing? Like when you walk into the office tomorrow morning, do you kind of want everyone to notice, like, hey, there's the boss. Jesus died so that I could let go of my need to be the main thing. Jesus died so I could let go of my need for recognition. Many of you will spend half your day today posting things on Facebook, trying to get recognition so people would say, man, you're a great person. Jesus died so you could let go of that. You wouldn't need to do that. Jesus died so I can let go of my need for attention. And here's what I told you at the beginning. This isn't natural in my human form. The human form is me first. And so Paul's going to say, have this mind among yourselves. If I'm going to live in a way that puts others above myself, I'm going to have to have a focused and intentional mind or that will never happen. So I'm going to look at who Jesus is, and I'm going to surrender and say, I will live that way too, because whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever tries to exalt himself will be humbled. So Hill City, and we evaluate ourselves. Remember, the goal is not knowledge. The goals that we would follow. What's my attitude? What's my frame of mind? Have this mind among yourselves. What is, what is the frame of mind that kind of leads me? Is it me first? Is this my mindset? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he's the form of God and not consider it, is that my mindset? Is this my way of life? As a church, Hill City Church corporately, we're young. What are we going to be known for in this city? Are we going to be known for the people that stand back and point fingers at all the people that we don't think live right? Or are we going to be known for the people that humble ourselves and get out amongst people and roll up our sleeves? Have this mind among yourselves which is yours 
in Christ Jesus. One of the things that, I, that we teach you a lot here is that our practices shape our beliefs. Our practices shape our loves. That's why we do certain practices every time we're together because these practices are shaping us. Here's a few practices that I've put into my life I would encourage you in pursuing humility because I'm the most humble person I know. So, Every day, here's a practice. Try this. First thing in the morning, Focus on gratitude. Focus on three things you're thankful for. Here's what that does. It points things away from me and somewhere else. I'm thankful for God's grace in my life here. I'm thankful for Emily here. I'm thankful for my children here. It points people, it points it away from me. Every day, practice. Start with three things you're grateful for. Next, here's another practice I try to do. Reflect on the cross. Preach the gospel to yourself. So I go from three, three things I'm thankful for, adoration, to reflecting on the cross. Jesus sacrificed for me. Here's what that reminds me. It's not about me. And it's not about my religious activity or anything I've done. It kind of takes me off any type of pedestal I might want to put myself on. So I focus on the cross. So I get gratitude Focus on the cross, and then here's what I say now, how can I live that way? Those are practices, and that practice over time will start to shape your belief, and you will start to have the mind of Christ to put others before yourselves. Some of you, I would challenge you, where in your life do you serve? Where where in your life is it not about you? Some of you need to call up big brothers and big sisters and be like, hey, give me a 10-year-old boy that doesn't have a dad. I'm going to go serve. I'm going to lower myself and serve. Some of you need to go up to the connection team and be like, hey, I'm going to get here early a couple times a month, and I'm going to set up the stuff. I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to plug wires in and put tape on the floor. I'm going to serve. That's a practice. When do you simply serve? When you don't get paid for it, it's not about you. You don't get the recognition. You simply serve. It's a practice that will shape this belief. Hill City Church, as we take communion today, may we be pointed to Jesus. Maybe see him and maybe may we worship him. And then as we receive, as you receive the elements today, may you th- realize that In receiving that, you're receiving that because Jesus humbled himself and took your place in the cross. And as you receive that, may you say, so Jesus was, so I will be, I will follow. And in doing so, may we point each other to Jesus and as a body of believers may be more unified towards Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we consider Jesus. As Hebrews says, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we consider that though Jesus was God, he did not consider equality with you a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, made himself nothing. He took on human form, that he dwelt among us, that he lived as a servant, and he died 
on a cross. And may you give us a better picture of who Christ is this morning. And in doing so, may we see that picture. May we repent and follow. May we humble ourselves. May we bow our knee and confess that you're Lord. And as a body of believers, as a church, as Hill City Church, may that bring us closer together. We might love and serve one another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.